one slip up near the bubble and it's over. Getting in the money when it is just like really free to get in the money is very relevant. Attitudes, motivation, and anxieties are all crucial to our performance. It's not always about how you play on the bubble. It's really about playing better all the time. It comes down to a risk-reward decision that actually changes depending on your situation. The most important factor is really trying to get inside the head of each player at the table. When you worry or experience anxiety or stress, it reduces the bandwidth of your working memory and makes it harder to think deeply. Well, greetings and welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, sponsored by Running Aces, Casino, and Racetrack. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. The past five weeks, we've covered Jonathan Little's book, Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker, Volume 1. And we're thinking about doing something like this again, so I'd love to have your feedback. Did you like it? Did you hate it? What would make it better? All of those sorts of things. So shoot me a note on Facebook or Twitter or email. Let me know what you thought of that. And if you have any suggestions on which books we might cover. This week, we're going to move on to our new format, which I'm very excited about. Uh, after a few quick announcements, this episode is going to delve into the question of how to play as we're nearing the tournament bubble. And this question came from a, a lot of different people, uh, most directly probably from Steve Vang, who asked how to hold when ahead late in MTTs, multi-table tournaments. And Paul Morton said he is capable of building a stack, but is playing nearing the bubble or near bagging, or in the money, tends to become too loose and aggressive, and he loses a lot, if not all, of his chips too often. And so in addition to my own thoughts, which will come after the experts, so you can shut it off if you want, <laughs> you are going to hear the thoughts from some of our resident experts, including Mike Schneider, Chris Fox-Wallace, Jonathan Little, and Dr. Tricia Cardner. So I think you're going to enjoy all of those. Before we do that, uh, thanks to our partners, Running Aces, our official sponsor, Next Level Poker, our official tour, the Poker is Fun Tour, PokerCoaching.com, and PeakPokerMindset.com. For those of you in Minnesota, please consider playing All In For Africa 7, October 28th, 10.30 a.m. at Running Aces. Normally, they start their tournaments on Saturdays at 10 a.m. This is going to be a 10.30 a.m. start time. We already have 50 people who are scheduled to be bounties, and the final table is going to be broadcast live by Next Level Poker, so that's pretty cool. The flyer is currently being printed right now with pictures of all the bounties. Details are at runaces.com or at, uh, you can find All In For Africa on Facebook or Twitter. And we've also added a second charity event this, just like four days later, five days later, on the Thursday, November 2nd at 6 p.m. in the evening at Running Aces. We're calling this the Hawaiian Dream Winner Take Most Tournament. The buy-in is $120 plus $20 add-ons with all net proceeds from the event also going to the Against Malaria Foundation. The prize pool is fixed and guaranteed. We're going to be paying the top five places these prizes, no matter how many people show up. The first, first place will get a Hawaiian trip for two, valued at about $9,500. It's a first-class flight from Minneapolis to Hawaii. Uh, you're going to spend seven days, six nights at the Four Seasons Resort on Maui, $100 per day resort credit, uh, ground transportation's covered, all of that stuff. Uh, is all included in that trip. So that's pretty awesome. That was donated anonymously, and we're using it to generate more funds to uh, to change the world. But we're also going to pay out second through fifth place in tournament lammers from running aces. Second place will get $1,000 worth, third will get $500, and then fourth and fifth will each get $250 worth of tournament lammers. And the details will all be at runaces.com. So let's do a quick commercial for running aces, and then we will get into the discussion on this question 
uh, with responses from our experts, and then I'll follow up at the end, and we'll close it off. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. People are like, are you little? Because your name says you're little. I say, no, I'm not little. Hello, this is Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com. And there are two main reasons that people bust before getting in the money. The first is because they just play too tightly and they end up blinding off. Now, that doesn't seem what happens in this question, but that is what happens to the majority of players. They play a somewhat snug game, and as the average chip stack decreases, they don't really keep up with maintaining their chip stack. So say you start with the tournament with 10,000 chips, they may double up to 20,000 chips or 30,000 chips over the course of the tournament before they get near the money. But when they get near the money down to the final 10% of people, they have, you know, three starting sacks, but everyone else has six or eight. And that just doesn't work out too well, right? Because they are at half of average. Um, So that's what happens to most people. They end up losing a flip or getting it all in with even 70% equity and then they're out. So that's not what you want to do. Alternatively, other people play way too loosely and aggressively nearing the bubble, citing concepts such as, I'm trying to play for the win. And while there certainly is value in trying to win the tournament, at the same time, you have to realize that getting in the money when it is just like really free to get in the money is very relevant, especially as your stack starts to diminish a bit. Like if you are nearing a bubble, like let's say 27 people get paid in the tournament and there are 29 left, and you have maybe 15 or 20 big blinds, and the average stack is maybe 25 or 30 big blinds, and there are six or eight people with three or four big blinds, well, you really need to get in the money because it's completely free. And locking up that two-buy-in score may not seem like much, but over time, you'll find that cashing those two-buy-ins here and there will perhaps change you from being a small loser to a small winner or from a small uh, from like a break-even player to a reasonable winner and whenever you find yourself near the bubble with a lot of chips that is often when you need to be pushing a little bit while also not doing anything too absurd um i, I remember a bubble i recently played at the world series where a player who had a medium stack kind of like i was just discussing a stack that should very easily just sneak into the money raised from under the gun Folds around to the chip leader and the big blind who re-raises with pocket tens, which I think is already a horrible play because the initial raiser under the gun was a very good player. But at the same time, he had a you know 25 or 30 big blind stack and there were a lot of short sacks on this bubble and we were on the exact bubble with like, I don't know, 800 people left. You know, it was a very, very big tournament and the person re-raised with pocket tens. And I think that was a huge mistake because the initial raiser under the gun should be very tight. And then once you re-raise, if your opponent puts all of his money in, which is what happened, he went all in, this guy's going to have like aces and kings and maybe queens if he has any idea of what's going on because he can very easily just sneak into the money, right? So he ended up going all in with his aces. The guys with tens called. The tens ended up busting the guy with aces and uh, we were in the money. But that was a spot where the player with tens made a pretty big mistake because it should be very clear that the opponent is only putting his money in with aces. And maybe that's what's happening to you. Maybe you are playing just too aggressively with a big stack in general. And it's always important to know what your opponents are thinking. You know, some people will just continue raising with 
all sorts of hands whenever they are nearing the bubble, whereas other players really will tighten up and realize that getting that cash is relevant. Um, that said, I really don't focus on the idea of a cash percentage too much. Um, Daniel Negreanu did a study a few years back where he looked at all the players in the World Poker Tour who had more than something like 50 tournaments played. And by far, the biggest losers had the highest cash percentage, something like 30%. And you know these players who cash 30% feel like they're doing great, right? They're cashing 30% of the time. But if you look at the biggest winners, they're cashing right at whatever the average cashing rate should be. Like say they pay 12% of the field, the best players in the world are cashing like 12% of the time, but they're winning way more often than everyone else. So winning is what matters at the end of the day, but there are certainly spots in the tournament where your main concern should be maximizing your equity. And that should always be your main concern, unless you're playing purely for glory and you don't care about money whatsoever. But most poker players do care about money. So um, the main goal of playing poker for most professionals, at least, is to try to win the most money possible. And when you can collect a very nearly free cash, you probably should. So thank you very much for listening to me. This has been Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com. Go there and get a free seven-day trial. You can try lots of our quizzes, participate in the homework webinars, and learn with all my students. So check it out at PokerCoaching.com. Thanks for submitting the question. Fox here from Next Level Poker. This is a question I've heard probably as much as any. If I wanted to write a best-selling poker book, the title would be How Not to Bubble Tournaments Anymore. It is a thing I constantly hear, either finishing on the bubble or min-caching and trying to figure out how to get deeper in tournaments. The first and maybe most important answer is there's no answer for this, really. Uh, It's tough to do, and nobody does it all the time. The best players in the world don't get past the bubble more than 20 or 25% of the time. If you play well and you play fairly tight, You're going to end up near the bubble a lot of the time, and many of those times you're not going to make the money or you're going to min-cash. That's the reality of being a good tournament poker player. But there are ways you can certainly get better. It's not always about how you play on the bubble. It's really about playing better all the time. Every time you have a chance to win some chips and don't, or have a chance to save some chips and lose them instead, is a problem. It's what's costing you those bubble finishes. If you could have doubled up in a spot or you could have bluffed someone out of a pot or you could have folded earlier in a hand or made that big river fold that would have saved your stack or part of your stack, you would get past the bubble more often. You would have more chips on the bubble. That's really where it is. There are certainly strategies to playing on the bubble. I'm sure a lot of people are talking about them relating to this question in the podcast. Things like knowing when to put on bubble pressure and when to get off the gas, knowing when you're near the bubble to be careful and not play hands unless you're serious about them and you're willing to go all the way or knowing when you're going to bet and then fold and save enough chips to make it into the money, you know, one slip up near the bubble and it's over. If you're in a situation, say there's been a raise and you have 18 big blinds with ace king, you're deciding whether you want to shove all in flat or fold, depending on how close to the bubble you are, who your opponent is, all those kinds of things. In a lot of cases, the right thing is to ship all in, but if you're right on the bubble and you know that the person who raised is likely to have a hand and play with you, it might be better to fold here. And there are definitely times when if you think the person is not a great player or if you think that they will give up if they don't hit their hand, where you might flat. But thinking about those things ahead of time is the key. Planning out your hand, not getting yourself in trouble, and learning to play better in every stage. 
It also helps to spend the earlier levels paying attention to your opponents so that you know them and you know how to stay out of trouble and how to abuse them when the bubble comes along. So it's really every poker skill that you need to work on for the entire tournament that helps you not bubble as often, helps you run deeper into the money when you get into the money. The first goal, I think, for a lot of especially recreational players should be getting into the money and then worry about making it farther than that. So play tight, play smart, don't do anything stupid. Hi, this is Mike Schneider of Poker is Fun Tour, which is located at PIFTPoker.com or PIFTPoker on Twitter. This question is something that I often struggle with too, but in an opposite way. I feel like the times I do end up with a solid chip stack as we get closer to the bubble, I end up playing too tight and my stack just gets whittled down in the last couple of hours leading up to the bubble bursting. For me, the most important factor is really trying to get inside the head of each player at the table. There are some guys who are going to hang on as long as they can because they want that cash, and they're never going to gamble if it can put their tournament life in the line. I think back to last year's Fall Poker Classic main event at Canterbury. We are a few players away from the money. A player under the gun open raised 3.5x and had about 15 big blinds remaining, and I 3-bet him from mid-position with two eights and about 40 big blinds. It folded around to him, and he tanked, and he tanked, and he tanked. Then he ended up folding pocket queens face up, a guy like him clearly was going to do whatever it took to make the money, and he's a great guy to go after when the bubble looms near. I threw about him suspecting he would have a wide folding range, though I never did suspect it include a hand as large as pocket queens. Conversely, when I do have a lot of chips, one of the things I'm not afraid to do is what many might perceive as a quote-unquote light call of a 3-bet all-in. A few years back, playing in one of the big local tournaments, I remember I had a large chip stack with about 25% of the field left. I open raised pocket sevens, player went all in for about one-fourth of my stack, and I called it off. He had ace-queen and my hand held up. Afterwards on Twitter, he asked me about my call, and I explained that, among other things, I like people seeing that I'll call off a decent amount of my chips lightly. What this accomplishes is it tends to stick in people's minds and make them less susceptible to take a shot three-betting me lightly. So then that means the times I do actually get 3-bet, it generally makes deciding what to do with my marginal hands way easier for me to play because in general, people's jamming ranges get tightened up. So going back to that 7s versus ace-queen hand low, I did run some brief equities with, with pocket 7s against what I suspected his shoving range to be. The math itself said call, assuming my estimation of his range was accurate. So if you're already doing this type of lighter type of call thing where the, the math is close but the made of game benefits can be huge, if you feel like you're all you're ever doing is losing your chips every time, it really comes down to two possibilities. Number one, you could just be running bad in flips and or running into the top of the range. Or two, you may not know your opponent well enough and are calling off lightly against a person who will never be light against you. So, I mean, so yeah, it could be either one of those or some combination of them, and that might be why you feel like your chips are disappearing. But I'd also add that this metagame light call doesn't serve much of a purpose if after doing so, you're just going to play super tightly. You want that uh, I'm not folding to you image when you're going to continue to try to blind steal lightly and attack the medium small stacks and guys you perceive to be trying to fold their way to the money. I say the medium small stacks because they're most likely the... They're most regularly the stack size that feels like they still have time to be patient and wait for a better spot. 
Once their stack gets under, say, 10 to big blinds, you're more likely to get action in it, and it might not be the action you want. I prefer to win as many chips as possible without having to see a flopper put a ton of chips at risk by being played back at potentially lightly. And the medium small stacks are the guys most likely to play that tight predictable style, which I'd just go ahead and call a medium small stack as being maybe like 15 to 20 or maybe 25 big blinds, depending on what the structure is or what the average chip stack is in that particular tournament. Which that's about all I've got for general thoughts on this question. So until next time, thanks for listening to me, and I hope you'll consider giving the Poker is Fun Tour a follow on Twitter at P-I-F-T Poker, or myself at Schneid's Poker, which is S-C-H-N-E-I-D-S Poker. We had our first Poker is Fun Tour events on September 9th and September 10th at Canterbury with Pajin Lu, also known as Lucky Lou, winning Saturday's $450 winner shown event for $8,501, and Cody Tork taking down Sunday's $185 winner shown for $2,427 after two deals got made, which they ended up leaving a little bit of money to play for, as well as a trophy. We also raised well over $2,000 for Second Harvest Heartland, which charity is another important component of the Poker is Fun Tour. So lastly, I'd just ask if you did play in the inaugural Poker's Fun Tour events and enjoyed it. I'd love it if you could tell your uh, favorite card rooms that you'd like to see Poker's Fun Tour, or as I like to call it, PIFT, added to their upcoming tournament calendar. With that, I'd say thanks and uh, have a good day. It's unbelievable. This is as good as it gets. It's unbelievable. Don't know what's going to happen next. I want to address why we might not be able to play on the bubble as well as our training would indicate that we should be able to play. In performance psychology, we use the term choking to indicate a worse performance than you'd expect based on your skill level simply because the stakes are high and the pressure is getting to you. Choking can occur when it really counts the most, like when you're on the bubble. If our perceived experience of an event is as stressful or pressure filled, then that can definitely derail us. When we're not worried, there's no choking and it doesn't affect our performance. But when it suddenly really matters, whether it's on the bubble of a tournament or when you're taking an exam, if you're still in school, we overthink the outcomes and then worry ensues. Let me backtrack for a second and talk about working memory. We need all of our working memory available when we're solving problems like how to cash in and then win this tournament. Working memory which resides in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, is what allows us to keep the problem we're trying to solve in mind while we go into our long-term memory storage to retrieve answers and strategies so that we can crush it. The prefrontal cortex allows us to play poker, calculate pot odds on the fly, plan several moves ahead, and trap our opponents. When you worry or experience anxiety or stress, it reduces the bandwidth of your working memory and makes it harder to think deeply. The end result is that you're not able to use your full cognitive capacity the way you can when you're in a state of calm. Brain scans of people in stressful situations show that the prefrontal cortex stops working as well as it should. It causes us to focus too much on the wrong things. Sometimes we call that paralysis by analysis, and that's where we start over-monitoring, and this disrupts our performance. 
I want you to beware of overthinking and talking yourself out of plays that you know to be good. I also want you to be very cautious about talking yourself into plays that away from the table you know would not be good. Brain scans of people in stressful situations show that the prefrontal cortex stops working as well as it should. In high-stress situations, we can get tunnel vision and dwell on things we shouldn't and lose the big picture. This makes us less creative, less able to come up with proper solutions, and less likely to think outside of the box. So what's going on in the brain when we're under pressure? MRI scans show that the prefrontal cortex does not communicate well with the rest of the brain whenever we're under stress. The biggest issue with all this is what it does to our emotional control. We might react in an emotional way, even if this is not common for us. This happens because the prefrontal cortex is taxed whenever it's under stress. When it's working well, it tamps down reactions from the amygdala and the insula, which are the alarm systems of the brain. The prefrontal cortex acts as a gatekeeper to these alarm signals. But when it's not at full capacity, our emotions can get the best of us and run the show. Even anticipating a stressful or anxiety-provoking event can lead to brain changes. Let me give you a quick example. One study of math-anxious people found that just having them think about doing math problems activated the mid-cingulate cortex and the posterior insula, which are both part of the neural pain matrix. These are the same brain areas that are activated when we prick our finger with a needle or stub our toe. The brain sends out neural alarm signals that are the same as if we were in physical pain. So if you're worried about losing or not cashing or worried about how you're doing relative to others in the field, which is a form of social comparison, you're effectively shutting down the thinking part of your brain and you'll not be able to play as competently or effectively. So what can you do with this knowledge? Don't dwell on the hand you just lost or a spot that you missed. Instead, you want to train yourself to think about what happened in a non-emotional way and come up with one broad, concrete thing that you might do differently next time. This strategy shows less activation in alarm areas and more activation in the prefrontal cortex on MRI scans. So do this whenever you take a bad beat or make a mistake. The second thing you want to do is watch how you hold your body because our posture sends signals to the brain. How you sit or stand actually affects hormones and neurotransmitters being produced and released in the brain. If you slump over and hang your head, your brain interprets that as a negative signal and sounds the alarms, which then, as we already know, is going to decrease prefrontal cortex activity. Pep talks can be useful if they include you talking to yourself about why you can and should succeed in this event. For example, telling yourself, I prepared well, I've beaten this guy before, or I've done well in spots like these can all be very helpful. Be very specific about why you should be able to perform well. Specific evidence about why you can and should do well helps the brain, whereas hip hip hooray type pep talks do not work. Also, you should definitely incorporate meditation into your mindset training plan because meditation helps us to focus on what really matters and it helps us to keep calm. Even five to 10 minutes of meditation a day over a period of 30 days about will show dramatic improvements. The moral of the story is that mindset matters and how you think can change how your brain performs. Success is more than simply what you know. You want to practice your skill or your knowledge and practice your mindset skills. Attitudes, motivation, and anxieties are all crucial to our performance. 
Having insight into the science behind human performance lets you apply the right techniques to perform at your best when under stress, while having the wrong mindset can rob you of the brain power you need to perform at your best. So if you incorporate all this, I think what's going to happen is that you're going to do a lot better when you get in bubble situations. If you want to improve your mindset, then come over to my training website, peakpokermindset.com, where I have a free online course called Rub Up Your Poker Success, which will help you set and achieve all your poker goals, as well as maybe some of just your general life goals. Or you can join my private Facebook group by answering three simple questions and I will let you in. And that's over at Poker Mindset Mastery Lab on Facebook. Until next time, keep working on that mindset. So I recited Pi to 22,514 decimal places. It took me five hours and nine minutes. All right. Thanks for all of that great input. Uh, I wanted to give my thoughts on this as well as a, as a recreational player with a mathematical background. The question of how to play nearing the bubble for me is just part of a broader question about how to consider the tournament situation in general, with nearing the bubble just being one specific example of that. Uh, For me, it comes down to a risk-reward decision that actually changes depending on your situation. So I wanted to start with an example from real life that I think translates into what I'm trying to say. So let's say you work a job that pays you $40,000 per year. And that is the amount of income that you need to continue your current lifestyle. Then someone comes and he offers you a job that pays you a guaranteed $20,000 a year with a bonus that will be either zero or $40,000 with 50% probability of each. So your expected income is still $40,000, but would you take this new job? You'll end up making either $20,000 or $60,000 when you need exactly $40,000 to maintain your current lifestyle? And the answer to this question is individualized. It comes down to your specific utility. A risk-averse person would continue with the $40,000, and the risk-taking person might opt for the 50-50 option on either $20,000 or $60,000. But now, what if the new job offer was a guaranteed $60,000? Or you're guaranteed $40,000, plus a bonus of either zero or $40,000 with a 50-50 chance. So your expected value is $60,000 now. You're either going to get $60,000 fixed or $40,000 fixed, and then either zero or $40,000. In this case, more people would choose the second option because their primary objective, maintaining their current quality of living, would be achieved, and they might be willing to gamble a bit more. Still, a fair amount of people would take the guaranteed additional $20,000 rather than the 50-50 on zero or $40,000. And they might do that because they want to start building up a buffer. They still they want that extra $20,000 to, uh, to save. And so let's say you took the guaranteed additional $20,000 for five years and you're able to save that into $100,000 in the bank. And now you have much more of a buffer. Perhaps it would cause you to continue to think about taking the gamble for the additional bonus money. Or you take it to the extreme, let's say you have $10 million in the bank and you're just working for fun. Would you be more prone to take the gamble when the $20,000 means far less to you? All of these things get to the concept of utility theory. From an expected value perspective, the decisions are indifferent but there is the risk-reward attachment that considers the marginal additional utility or the value to the individual of either the up or the down potential scenarios. So we bring this back into poker tournaments. 
as we near the bubble, there are different ways to make decisions. One is sort of an expected value approach. You play it like a cash game. You make the decision that leads to the highest expected value in terms of chips won or lost. You're not considering the tournament situation and the payouts. You're just making decisions based on, is this the right expected value for the number of chips that are in play? The other approach is playing to win. This is kind of the go big or go home. And you might take risks that are actually bigger risks than uh, expected value uh, because you're, you're playing to win. You're willing to go bust um, in exchange for taking a shot at winning. And you might make decisions that are even negative EV to do that. Another approach is sort of turtling or going into a shell, just trying to get in the money. You're, you're actually turning down good expected value opportunities because you want to just get in the money first. So you're not really making the right EV decision. You're, you're doing this because your priority is to get in the money. And then there's this, this concept that I'm trying to introduce around utility theory or ICM, which is the independent chip model considerations. Um, and, and a lot of people are already thinking about this in terms of payouts and things, but I think it applies more broadly. And ICM uses the probability of finishing in each place and then determining the expected payout based on those probabilities and the payout structure. So it's not an EV where you're looking at what's the expected value of the chips that I'm going to win or lose. It's what's, the, what's my value in the tournament and what's my up or down um, if I win or lose this situation from a value of the tournament. In other words, how much value do my chips currently have when you overlay the payout structure and how much value will they have if I win or if I lose and what's the right decision based on the probability that I win or lose. So you don't have to do all the math behind it, but it's a, it's a very important concept. I think that's helped me a ton as I've thought about approaching the bubble. So consider this, uh, this is an extreme example. Let's say there's 12 players left in a qualifier and the qualifier will pay $1,000 to each of the final 10 players. Now nine of the 12 players have 100,000 chips and the other three each have 10,000 chips. So you've got uh, two more bust outs and you all get 1,000 bucks and you have three people that are extremely short. Now if you look at it from an ICM perspective, the value of those nine big stacks is $982. And the value of the other three stacks is $388. And the reason it's so high is that one of those three players will get through. Now let's say that you are a big stack with 100,000 chips and another big stack in front of you shoves for their entire 100,000 chips. And it folds around to you and you are in the big blind and you look down and you find out that you have pocket aces. And let's say you know that you're an 80% favorite to win the hand. What should you do? Now your current ICM value is $982, which is pretty much means you're guaranteed to get through if you don't screw up. And if you call and you lose, your value becomes zero. If you call and you win, you'll have 200,000 chips and you will have busted the other player. So your ICM value becomes basically $1,000. It's like $999.82. So there's a 20% chance that you get zero, an 80% chance that you basically guarantee the $100,000 so your expected ICM value becomes $800. Now remember what it was before? 982. So by calling with ace ace here in this situation, you have actually lost about $182 in expected ICM value. What if this were not a qualifier? What if there were 12 left with the same chip counts, nine at 100,000 and three at 10,000, but the $10,000 in payouts 
were that of a standard tournament. It's like 34% and change for first, all the way down to like 2.25% uh, for 10th. Uh, the ICM value of the nine big stacks is $1,047. The value of the other three stacks is $192. You are one of the big stacks with 100,000 chips, and another big stack in front of you shoves for their entire 100,000 chips. It folds around to you, and you are the big blind. You look down, you find you have pocket aces, and you figure you are an 80% favorite. What should you do? Your current ICM value is $1,047. Pretty much guaranteed to at least cash. If you call and lose, your value becomes zero. If you call and win, you will have 200,000 in chips and will have busted the other player, and your ICM value becomes $1,588. So there's a 20% chance you have zero and an 80% chance you have an ICM value of 1588. So your expected ICM value in this decision is 1270. By calling with ace-ace here in this situation, you have added about $233 in expected ICM value. What if you figure you're a 55% favorite? Say you're a pair racing two overcards. Calling here would lead to an expected ICM of $873. Because you have a 45% of getting zero and 55% of getting 1588. So from an EV perspective, now this is where we look at the difference. From an EV perspective, you should call if you think you're a 55% favorite. But from an ICM value perspective, calling here would be a mistake. You'd have an expected ICM loss of about $170. Now what if you were already in the money? Let's say there are 10 left and 10 get paid for that same payout schedule that we talked about earlier and there are 8 big stacks of 100,000 and 2 small stacks of 10,000. In this spot you already have some money locked up and your expected ICM value is 1160. Now the same situation, the big stack shoves, you have pocket aces, figure you're an 80% favorite. If you lose, you will still get the min cash of 225 bucks, and if you win, your expected ICM value jumps to 1722. So your expected ICM value is 1423, an increase of expected value of $263. As a 55% favorite, your expected ICM value is 1048, which is still a loss of $112. So there's a lot of math, sorry, a lot of numbers flowing around here, but hopefully what you get out of this is in the above examples, if you buy into this ICM approach, calling as a 55% favorite is a mistake. The downside risk outweighs the upside potential. This is like the concept of utility theory. From an expected value perspective, you would always call as a 55% favorite, but these spots are different because the payouts are the, are the cash that you receive for your place in the tournament, not the cash that you receive from winning that particular pot where all the chips are, are worth the same value. In general, you can consider ICM as roughly equivalent to expected value when the payouts for the next several spots are the same. So if you are early in a tournament when you're not near being in the money, or once you have made the money but you're a long way from when the slope of the payouts increases, in those places, an EV decision is basically the same as an ICM decision. Uh, graphically, it's a linear payout locally in that area. But where there are material changes in the payouts over the next few spots, the ICM curve must be considered, in my opinion. So the experts you know, talked about different elements of this. This is just one piece that I think is important to understand that 
Um, you don't always have to think about where you are in the tournament, but when you're getting close to the bubble and when you're getting toward the where the money starts to curve, you need to start thinking about the impact of ICM considerations or that the value of your stack is different than just an expected value perspective. And I think that's going to help you make those right decisions uh, when you're in those spots for sure. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Okay, well, thank you to the experts. Thank you to Running Aces Poker for, uh, for continuing to support what we're doing here in the Rec Poker Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can contact us uh, through Facebook. We have a group called Rec Poker. Twitter, we have Rec Poker as well. Uh, or just email me, stevefredland at gmail.com. Uh, I'm collecting uh, questions from people, and we're using those to form the questions that I'm asking of our experts. So feel free to sh- reach out to me, and uh, maybe we'll get your question on the air as well. Uh, also, just give me any feedback on what's working what's not working as we continue to try to improve what we're doing here. Uh, having a great time doing it, learning a lot, and uh, running pretty good at the tables uh, as, it, as it pertains to, uh, to results. So uh, hopefully this is helping your game as much as it's helping mine. Take care, and we will chat next week. <laughs>